And turn with me in your Bibles for this time in the Word of God to the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Luke chapter 9. And as you're turning there, um, the world sure is in a mess because of sin. A number of years ago, one of my children had closed himself up in the room and had been gone for a while and had taken the dog in, in the room there and... My wife, finally, after knowing something was going, going on, kind of you know, this eerie silence that uh, you feel when you know your children are possibly into something, she opened the door, and one of my kids had taken a whole tube of um, desitin, um, oily you know, ointment, and had smeared it all over the back of the dog, and the wall, and the floor, and himself. And, um, you know, it's not an anointment that you can just wipe off, all right? And so the, the dog pretty much smelled and looked oily for the next two months. And, um, and so it, it, was a, it sure was a mess. You know, kids can get into things. You've got your own stories. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus has been transfigured on, on the mount, and he comes off this mountain and the nine other disciples who were left in charge, you know, at the bottom of the hill, when Jesus returns, there's just a terrible mess. I mean, there, there's, um, there's suffering, there's heartache, there's, there's powerless control over demonic possession that the disciples had earlier had. There's arguing, there's bickering, and there's fighting. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in his steps of tenderness and compassion, takes a broken-hearted father, heals his heart, takes a tormented son, and delivers him from the demon, and takes these disappointed, arguing group of disciples, and puts them all in their place. You see, that's what Jesus can do. It reminds me of when Moses in the Old Testament was on Mount Sinai receiving the glory of God in uh, the, the personal hand and fingertips of God as he's writing the Ten Commandments. He comes off the mountain and he gets halfway down. And lo and behold, he hears the Israelites dancing and cutting themselves and making a ruckus as they've made a calf of gold. And Moses becomes so angry and upset. He was gone just a little while. And look what you've done. This world is in a mess. The answer is Jesus. You see, Jesus can show up. And if you'll follow his voice, he can put what sin has distorted and messed up and created such a mess, and he can bring healing. And, uh, but you've got to let Jesus rule. Raphael, the great painter, the famous gallery in Rome, sits one of his last and greatest paintings. It's called the Transfiguration. At the top of the painting on the mountain is Jesus, and he's in midair. And on his right and on his left is Moses and Elijah. Just below him on the top of the mountains, he painted the three disciples who are waking up from drowsiness and asleep. At the bottom of the mountain, Raphael painted a crowd of people that are gathered in the valley around nine disciples who are seen and pictured arguing with some of the scribes and Pharisees. There's a father in the crowd who's holding his son. The son is painted drooling from his mouth with his mouth open. Looks like he's convulsing and shaking as this father has this desperate face. One man in the crowd is painted pointing at the demon boy. Another man in the painting is pointing up to the top of the mountain where Jesus is being transfigured. So one man in the crowd is pointing to the little boy. Another man in the crowd is pointing up. Raphael is showing in this painting that the need for this little boy as well as all the world is the one on the mountain. You see, it's not the disciples, it's not the scribes, it's not the government, it's not the church, it's not some special helps book that's going to help you. It's not some priest or the next video game or the next iPhone that's going to fix your problem. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. It always has been. 
and always will be. And whatever state you find yourself in, whatever turmoil, whatever torment, whatever heaviness or burden that you bear today, spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally, Jesus Christ is the answer. And in this text of Scripture, as we've read through from one event to the next, Jesus is seen solving problems because He is the answer to this world. Now, following these events that we've seen in the last few weeks, we need to move forward. This is a chapter that has 62 verses in it, and I feel like we've been there for three or four months. And and to help you out, or maybe discourage you to some extent, the next chapter has 42 verses. The next chapter after that has 54 verses. The next chapter after that has 59 verses. Luke loves to write a whole lot. And these chapters you seem to applaud through, but he packs a whole lot. In fact, Luke is the, is the largest written portion of the Gospels, as well as Luke as the author between Luke and the book of Acts, writes more than the Apostle Paul, more than any New Testament author. Luke is the one who records for us the most. And because of that, sometimes it feels like we're, we're plodding on this journey through one verse, one chapter at a time. And it seems like we've been in chapter 9 for a long time. Well, I'd like for us to read here and, and go quickly to verse 59 down to the end of the chapter. The Bible says, And it came to pass, when time was come, that he should be received up. So Luke 9, verse 51, He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face. They went and entered into a village of Samaritans to make ready for him. They did not receive him, the villages, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? And he turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner spirit you are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another city. It came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee wherever you go. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. And he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. From what we have read here in this text, we have here is a reminder in these verses, in this chapter, we've come with uh, Jesus giving a statement about where he is headed, where he is going, sending messengers ahead of him. Then we have this confrontation with John and James. This jealousy that as he moves forward, there's one that's casting demons out in thy name because he's not with us. Or that, that, is, um, that is in verse 59, the two verses before, where John sees someone who is casting out devils in his name and he's upset with, with that. And uh, this jealousy that comes, and even we've already read from last week that the disciples were already reasoning and arguing with themselves together in verse 46 over which one would be the greatest. There's this competition that's moving forward. You see, John is upset that this man who doesn't fit into their category of the 12 disciples is out there doing miracles and he's not part of our group. You see, John is, is feeling this pleasure, uh, this, this um, uh, pleasured position, this, this prestige, this part of the twelve mentality that I'm better than you. And then on top of that, this inner three where he's just experienced something different than the other nine. And it seems like there's this jealousy that is going on with these disciples. And this reasoning among the disciples, this fighting with each other, over which one is better. You see, Jesus is 
has not even gone from them for very long and the fighting and the jealousy and pride that is going on with this inner conflict of the disciples. You know, pride is one of those sins that God hates. Solomon said, the first of these six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination unto the Lord, a proud look. That is, that is a person who looks down their nose upon someone else. Feeling that they have, they are better. They walk in the room and they know their class, their status, their money, their position, their, their intellect is better than anyone else in the room. And John and these disciples, as they are arguing over who's going to be the greatest and the best, who has the most favored position in Jesus' kingdom, in the kingdom that has come, and then they see someone else who's off in this group doing some, something in the name of Jesus, and that creates this jealousy and conflict with them. This proud spirit. One person said this, How can anyone be arrogant when they stand beside the cross of Jesus Christ? How can anyone in their pride look at the Lord Jesus Christ upon their cross and think that they're better than anyone else? Was it for crimes that I have done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. At the cross. At the cross where I first saw the light. And the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. Shame on us. When we stand before the cross of Jesus Christ and see his nail-pierced hands, his thorn-crowned brow, his pierced side, and don't see our own sinful selfishness and pride. You say we can't find out greatness until we measure it up, not amongst ourselves, but amongst the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, the same answer for the drooling man and the desperate father as he pointed up to Jesus is the same answer for the arguing disciples who are powerless and prideful and selfish to look to the cross of Jesus Christ. He's the answer of what greatness is. And Jesus in this story also takes the little child and pulls him out and said, you want to be great? Then you become like this child. You humble yourself. You be a servant. That's how you receive greatness. And then Luke points out a story of this man who is casting out demons, who's not even part of the twelve, doesn't seem to be following Jesus on a regular basis like they are. And Luke points that out and says, listen, God can use any instrument who is in his name. You don't have to be a part of the inner circle. You don't have to have this degree or that degree or, or be that type of student. God can use anyone. Now from this point of the verses that we read from Luke 9, 51. For the next 10 chapters in the gospel of Luke. From chapter 9 here at this point till chapter 19. A transition takes place with Luke. Luke departs from following Mark in his gospel and Matthew. And these 10 chapters are the most unique of the gospel of Luke. They are information that is recorded that is not necessarily recorded in Mark. And even some that's not recorded in Matthew. It's unique to Luke so far. Luke has really been following Matthew and Mark on a parallel where they've been telling the same events. But from this verse on to chapter 19 until you get to the Passion Week of Christ where Luke then will come back to the same events and Bible verses that are found in Mark and Matthew just told from Luke's standpoint. So what we're doing is this is a transition. This is the middle point of the Gospel of Luke. That there's, there's something unique that is going to happen that Luke is going to tell us from this point on. 
And it's interesting in this story, we find a, the dedicated Jesus. If you look down in verse 51 through 56, we saw this. I want you to see this in the verse. And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up. Two important um, points here I want to bring out. The phrase here, when it says here, when the time was come. This means Jesus knows that he has an appointed time on this earth. In other words, his earthly life, the days are counting down and he has an appointment to meet. And Jesus knows that appointment is coming close. Jesus knew his timing. He knew his days. Do you remember in the book of Daniel? Daniel prophesied the day of when the Messiah would be cut off. Jesus had done his math. And he knew just in a matter of days, just in a matter of months, he was going to Jerusalem. He was going to the cross. And Luke here says, Jesus knowing his appointed time, knowing his days, his life is being counted out. He has a meeting. He had just talked to Moses and Elijah about that meeting. He had talked about his exodus and how he was going to leave this world. He had had this conversation on the Mount of Transfiguration about his appointment that he had to meet. I want you to know, interesting enough, if Jesus Christ, he knows his time on this earth is coming to an end. Do you know that your days are numbered as well? Do you know that there is an appointment that you will keep? Whether you like it or not, there is an appointment for every person once to die and after this the judgment. And even our Lord Jesus Christ who was born lived 33 half something years. Right now he has only a few months to live. What would you do if the doctor came to you tomorrow morning in the doctor's office and said you only have a few months to live? What would you do? It would sober you up on probably some of your days. On how you would spend your time. Jesus knows his end. It's been prophesied in the Old Testament. Down to the very day that he will be cut off. And here this verse is telling us. That now Jesus is not that he wasn't before. But in, a, in an official serious capacity. The Lord Jesus Christ now is counting his days. He only has a little bit of time left. And the application for us is we don't know when God is finished with us. We don't know the appointment up to our time. Jesus did. Jesus used every day and every moment wisely. All the way down to the end. Anything that happened in Jesus' life happened for a purpose. Because Jesus knew it was going to happen. And he knew that his time and when he would come out of this earth. Second, it is interesting in this point here that it talks about his ascension. Jesus knew not only his, his day of his death, but he also knew of his ascension. This word means to lift up. It, it appears here in the New Testament just in this place, but it literally means a taking back up. It refers, some have said, is this referred to Jesus being lifted up, such as John 3 when he told, as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up? Or is this talking about his ascension that takes place in Acts chapter 1, where he ascends on the Mount of Olives back to the right hand of the throne of God? I believe it seems like the way this word is used as well in the book of Acts in a, in a, in a different form, it seems to connect to that time where Jesus would ascend back to the heaven. Not just about his death. Jesus, the time where he will be exalted. He had just been in a conversation with his disciples about how to be exalted. How do you become the greatest? You become the greatest by becoming the least. So in this verse, in verse 51, if you look at it, after he has appointed his time, he knows, he knows his time is coming to an end, that he's going to be received back up to his heavenly Father. Therefore, he steadfastly sets his face to go to Jerusalem. The Greek word, he established his face or his appearance. Strong says this definition is to have a turn resolutely to a certain direction, to be firmly fixed. Jesus Christ and his determination is now set. His face now shows something different than before. Interesting that earlier his face had transfigured, it metamorphosed. 
All right, it, it, uh, it altered in its appearance like it had never had before. Now he tells us here, his face now is become determined. Luke is saying from this point on, Jesus was determined to get to Jerusalem. He's got an appointment to meet. In the Psalms, this phrase, setting your face fixed, is used on someone who will put their eyes on a goal or their heart. David says, my heart is fixed on thee, O Lord. Luke is seeing an allusion to Isaiah 50. Will you turn over to Isaiah 50 with me just to see this? Isaiah prophesies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Clearly messianic. In Isaiah 50 in verse 6. The scripture says, I gave my back to the smiters. And my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be ashamed. So here Isaiah is prophesying the fact that Jesus will set his face like a flint. Here the Messiah is set in obedience and his determination and his resolve to fulfill the Father's will. Go back to chapter 9, look at verse 52. And he sent messengers before his face. Look at verse 53. And they did not receive him because his face. Three verses in a row has mentioned his face, his countenance. The disciples knew something was different about Jesus' face. For the next ten chapters, Jesus will be determined to make a trip to Jerusalem. Until he arrives in Jerusalem in chapter 19. Can you follow with me in this journey? Look at chapter 10 and verse 38. Chapter 10 in verse 38, now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. All right, so there's a trip. Now we know from the other passages that this is Bethany. This is the city of Bethany. Look at chapter 13 in verse 22. Chapter 13 in verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages teaching and, notice what it says, journeying towards Jerusalem. That's his destiny. That's where he's going. Look at chapter 17 and verse 11. 17 and verse 11. And it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Look at chapter 18 and verse 35. And it came to pass that as he came nigh unto Jericho. Jericho's only six miles from Jerusalem. That a certain blind man was by the way. Look at chapter 19 and verse 1. And Jesus entered and he passed through Jericho. Look at chapter 19 and verse 11. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem. Because they thought that the kingdom of God should appear immediately. Turn to verse 37. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, he's getting closer. Look at verse 41. And when I came to this verse in my study this week, I had a tear in my eye. And when he was come near, he saw the city. And he wept. Do you remember his face that was set in chapter 9? His days are numbered. And now for 10 chapters, he's been marching, 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 marching. He finally gets over the crest of the Mount of Olives. And there's the city. And he weeps. He weeps. It's his destiny. 
And from this single verse in chapter 9 and verse 51 to chapter 19 and verse 41, Jesus is on a single path to get to one place. I wonder if his disciples got a little bit excited when Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. I mean, what did he just tell them on the mount? You're going to see the kingdom of God. What has he been claiming to be? The Messiah, the King of the Jews. And what does the Messiah bring? A kingdom on this earth. I mean, what was he prophesying? What did they prophesy that would come to pass in Zechariah that he would march into Jerusalem on the cold of a donkey and become a king? What did the disciples see a glimpse of? They saw a glimpse of the kingdom and the king in all his glory and all his power. I'm sure the disciples are thinking... Jerusalem, when we get to Jerusalem, I know he's going to set up his kingdom. When he gets to Jerusalem, I know he's going to get rid of the Romans. When he gets to Jerusalem, I know you can just see it in his face. He's determined. He's the Messiah. Look at all the miracles that he's doing. He just fed the 5,000. Now he's transfigured before us. And Moses and Elijah are coming here. And I mean, the kingdom is coming. He's been telling us the kingdom is nigh. So these disciples are now with him in this resolute journey to Jerusalem because when he ends up in, uh, at Jerusalem in chapter 19, they're taking off their coats, they're pulling out palm branches, and he's walking into the city through the gates as they're crying out, Hosanna, save now, for the king has come. I mean, the disciples are excited. But what was Jesus anticipating? Well, go back to chapter 19 and look at verse 22. Don't, don't miss it, as the disciples so easily did. In chapter 9, in verse 22. And Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be slain and be raised the third day. Look at verse 44. Let these sayings sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. I mean, Jesus couldn't have put the statement more clearly. Why was he going to Jerusalem? Not to set up his kingdom. He's told them that multiple occasions. In fact, the phrase that is used there is he said, he continued to tell them this over and over again. They wouldn't get it through his, their stick, thick skull. I believe the agony of the cross officially begins in this verse, Luke 9, 51. When he set his face to Jerusalem. Looming over him every day was a seriousness on his face. God the Father was giving his son over into the hands of wicked men. The agony of the cross did not begin in the upper room. The agony of the cross did not necessarily begin in the Garden of Gethsemane. I believe officially, yes, Jesus came, was born in a manger, and from there it was prophesied. But I believe right here in this verse, Jesus setting his face is a determination that I'm going to do the Father's will, and that means suffering. The agony and the wrath of God for the sins of the world. His jaws tighten up. His face becomes stern, his eyes become focused, his lips become rigid, his forehead is determined. And Jesus is girding up the loins of his mind for a task that's going to take every ounce of strength. Can I ask you, how determined are you to follow God in what he's asked you to do? Are you resolute? How easy do you give up? Remember, the devil has been tempting him all along to bypass the cross, even to the point that he'd use Peter to do it. How much determination do you have to grind through the difficult things of life and obey the Father's will? We need some good old-fashioned fortitude and grit to just do the Father's will. 
well. I think it's too... Sometimes our new generation, my generation and those younger, give up too easily when things get hard. Things are going to get hard for Jesus. He's been followed by multitudes of people. From this point on to the rest of the chapter, he's going to start turning disciples away. They're going to start dropping like flies. And he's going to come at one point and turn around to his 12 and say, are you going to leave me also? Eventually the point that he will be left all alone in the Garden of Gethsemane. From here, it's downhill for Christ. But he's never more determined than in this verse where he sets his face to Jerusalem. And in the process, look at verse 53 and 54 in this chapter. He then, um, uh, in 52, he sent messengers before his face into the villages of the Samaritans to make ready for him. Jesus' journey to Jerusalem will include trips to some villages. And one of those villages and those er that area is going to be Samaria. He will return to the area of Samaria where he will later in the Gospel of Luke uh, find ten leprous men. So, Samaria is going to come up on a couple occasions. He will then give a parable in one of the chapters not far away about a Samaritan who is traveling on his way from Jericho. So, Samaria is going to play an important role in the next few chapters. And so, he's going to come through. But he sends out an entourage ahead of them. I mean, imagine 12 hungry disciples plus other disciples and all the multitudes that are following him. They, they take a little bit of planning and preparation. And so, he sends. He often does this. He sends disciples ahead of him to make ready. Jesus is coming. But notice what it says in the verse. And they went and entered into the village to make ready for him. And they did not receive him. I like what one author put about this passage. They put up no trespassing signs at the front. Jesus not wanted. Don't come to this village. We don't want your disciples. They eat too much. We don't want the crowds. It messes up our groove. You end up putting out our, our businesses and, 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 the, uh, and the corrupt people. Don't, don't do that. Don't come here. You're not wanted. Jesus is beginning to now... Um, be rejected from cities that otherwise he had been accepted in. He had come to that area before and met a woman at the well. Changed her life. So now they're rejecting the Savior who's come. And how does that make James and John feel? Look at verse 54. And these disciples, James and John, saw this and they said, Lord, wilt thou have us command fire to come down from heaven and consume them all? I mean, would it make you mad? If you were going over to your friend's house today for lunch and they told you don't bring your Bible, don't bring your Jesus, and don't bring your testimony, leave it at the door. How would that make you feel? That'd probably make you upset too, wouldn't it? I think James and John, when they realized this is the king, we've given our life to him and he's going to give his life to you. He's going to set up the kingdom and he's got grace and mercy. He's going to heal every person in your city. And now you're telling us he's not welcome? That makes James and John righteous in their indignation. They're upset. They're angry. They're not accepting their Messiah. They take it personal. I think I would probably be that angry too. And so they say, Jesus, how about you command us and we'll call fire to come down from heaven. Just like Elijah did on Mount Carmel. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, just anybody that rejects Jesus, burn them up right then and there. That's James and John's personality about it. They had a zeal. They had a courage. They had a boldness. They weren't willing. I mean, they, they weren't willing to push back. They were strong and bold. But, interesting that Jesus tells them here, he responds to them both in sternness and in tenderness. Because Jesus responds in verse 55, and he turned and he rebuked them. This is the same word rebuke that was used in verse 42 when Jesus rebuked the demon. That's, that's a strong word. He turns to James and John and he rebukes them. That's stern. It's the same rebuke that he gave Peter when Peter got in the way. 
And he says, first of all, he rebukes them. He corrects their attitude. He says here, you don't know what manner of spirit. We say spirit. He's not talking about demon spirits. They're not demonically possessed in this moment here. But there is an attitude that you have that is wrong. He corrects their attitude. What is their attitude? Their, their attitude here in this place is that they had zeal. They had determination. They were dedicated to their Messiah. That's not what he's rebuking. What he's rebuking is they had zeal without grace. You see, these sons of thunder were strong and zealous and patriotic and standing upon truth. But they lacked the love and patience and grace that it requires to stand in the face of those who reject you. You saw their first reaction is when somebody rejected their Savior, their first reaction was to cut them off. Burn them in hell. And Jesus corrects their attitude. You see, it's hard for us today when we come in contact with a world that is more hateful, more rejecting of truth. I mean, our society has become more hardened to biblical truth than ever before. And, and when I watch the news and I read the evil that is going on here and I, and I see the corruption and the blatant denial of absolute truth is God the creator. It stirs my soul with so much anger towards those who reject truth. I understand James and John. But Jesus reminds the attitude is that he's not come to destroy the world, but to do what? Save it. So not only does Jesus correct an attitude, but he, create, he corrects an eschatology. Their doctrine's wrong. Look, look here, he says, in verse 56, the Son of Man has not come to destroy the men's lives. So hold on a second, but isn't that what the Messiah is supposed to do? Isn't he supposed to come and all the Gentiles and all the rejectors and all the Antichrist and all the God-haters and all the deniers of the gospel, all of those, aren't they supposed to get what they deserve? Aren't you to set up a kingdom? Aren't you to bring Israel back into the land? Aren't you to, to vindicate and be the God of justice and vengeance? What about all those passages in the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah who's going to put all his enemies under his feet? Jesus says, that'll happen, but not yet. I'm not going to come as the Lion of tribe of Judah until I first come as the Lamb who was slain. You see, what use is it? It's to bring political reform and national reform if you don't correct men's souls, men's hearts. And Jesus had not come this time to restore the kingdom. He had come this time to take a cross and save men from their sins. So Jesus corrects their eschatology. He says, listen, there's a first coming and a second coming. Now, he doesn't explain that all in one statement. But he says, not yet. Not yet. You're not wrong in your understanding of divine judgment. There will come a day where Jesus Christ will unleash hell on earth. And then for those who reject him, the Bible says, when they're not found in the Lamb's book of life, he will take death, hell, and the grave, and all those who've rejected the Son of Man, and cast them into the lake of fire, because the judge of all this earth will do right. There's coming a day when fire will come down from heaven. But not yet. Jesus is still in love and grace and compassion not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus is teaching his disciples that in the process of preaching the kingdom of God and the judgment of God, don't have so much grit that you don't have grace. We ought to stand for truth. We ought to be, have righteous indignation, but we also ought to have the other side of the coin that our hearts go out for those who are hardened to the truth because if it wasn't for the grace of God, we would all be there too. So they need that preacher. They need someone to go to them and tell them. They need someone to show them the truth. They need someone to point them to the cross, to point up to Jesus and say, He's the answer before it's too late. And Jesus had not come into this world at this time to condemn the world, 
but that the world, John says, through him might be saved. So Jesus says, let them leave up their no trespassing signs. We'll have another chance. We'll be through here in a few weeks. You do right, plant the seed. And you remember what he told the disciples? He told them when that happens and they reject you, wipe the dust off your feet and move on to the next village. Don't turn around and cast them, you know, into hell. Just move on. Don't take it personal. And can I tell you, those of you who have loved ones who have rejected the truth of God's word over and over and over again, and you become hardened and upset and angry because they're just not seeing it the way you're seeing it, would you pray for them again? Would you have patience with them one more time? Would you just just stand on what you believe, don't compromise, but ask God to give you both grit and grace? To do the hard thing. Can I ask you today, how's your spirit of correction? When Jesus came to John and James and corrected their attitude that was wrong and their eschatology that was wrong, they needed to just surrender to the will of Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, you know what's best. There are times when we need correcting and we need the correcting hand of the Savior. And uh, because I would like to finish this chapter, I would just mention, I'll just summarize it. I've got four or five pages of notes for these next three, and I could teach a whole lesson, but I'm not going to because I want to get in the next chapter. Jesus comes in contact in his journey with three disciples, three potential disciples at the end of this chapter. All three of them, Jesus deals with their heart. You see, Jesus can look inside any person and he knows our motives. He knows why we do what we do, what motivates us, and what's keeping us. And Jesus is able to do what we can't. He's able to look down and pinpoint the very reason and excuse that we may use. So he has three disciples. One who comes to him and says, Lord, I'm willing to give everything up and leave it all behind and follow you. In other words, this guy comes running out of the crowd following Jesus. He's heard he's going to Jerusalem. What is he going to do to Jerusalem? Well, the 12 other disciples think that he's going to set up his kingdom and become king and get rid of the Romans. All right? So this guy says, I want to be a part of that. Give, you know, if I'm going to, he's going to be on the right hand, he's going to be on the left hand, maybe I'll pull up a bench next to him. Matthew tells us that he is a scribe who ends up coming in with this, um, with this a- anticipation of prestige. Scribes had land, property, and money. And Jesus turns around to this man and says, Foxes have their dens. Birds have their nests. But the only thing I promise you is nothing. Nothing. I don't even have a pillow to lay my head on. And if you come after me in this life, that's all you get. What kind of job um, recruiting is it when, when you've got a hard task at hand and you're looking for employees and you promise them no pay, no insurance, not even a house over their head, no shade by day or by night, nothing but a cross. Now, we're not told what the outcome of this man is. Neither one of all three of them, we're not told whether they followed him or not. Based on Jesus' response, we can assume that they ran away. But Jesus is hitting the heart of this man. You see, there are some people who choose to follow Jesus just for what he gives them on this earth. I would like, and I believe I've read this week, this would be the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I'll give my life to Jesus. If he'll bless me, if he'll give me lands, he'll give me property, I'm going to be a righteous person. I'm going to do right because I want to be blessed here on this earth. And listen, Jesus doesn't promise his disciples anything on this earth. He promises to his disciples that when they stand in the next life, they will stand with the inheritance of the kingdom of God.
But for some people, that's not enough. That's the first disciple. The second one is, he comes, Jesus initiates and says, come follow me. And the guy says, hold on a second, let me go home and bury my father. This, this man, we're not even told that his father is necessarily dead yet. This could be a figure of speech basically saying, let me go home and take care of my father's business. Let me help make sure that his affairs are in order. Let me make sure the inheritance, maybe he's the first son and on the first son, then all of the responsibility to take care of the inheritance was laid on the firstborn and, and all of that. In the first century, they buried their dead the very day. Within 24 hours, they were buried. However, there was a process of mourning that took several days, even more than that, to have settled the inheritance, all this. Basically what this man is doing, Jesus is not saying, don't go home to your dad's funeral. Jesus attended funerals. Jesus told us to mourn and weep. Jesus is not telling him to go home and dishonor his parents or leave his parents and dishonor them. No, Jesus taught honoring your father and mother. But what Jesus knew deep down in this man's heart is that he, he wanted to enjoy and, and go through the process of some of the things back at home first. So he said, Jesus, I'll follow you, but I've got some other things I need to do first. Right? Once I finish with my family, finish with the stuff that I have at home, and I finish with my father and all his funeral and everything else, and I get all the affairs in order, then I'll come follow you. And Jesus is saying, let the dead bury the dead. I think it's a figure of speech. Dead people can't bury themselves. They need live people to do that. However, some have indicated that Jesus may be giving a spiritual lesson saying that those who are spiritually dead, they take care of the things on this earth. You mind the kingdom of heaven? That could be. I think what Jesus is just basically saying is he's saying, let the affairs of the business and the home of your family alone and come follow me. Be willing to leave it. Don't, don't say, I'll, I'll serve you, Lord, after I'm retired. After I've, I've gotten my degree, and after, then I'll start coming to church more regularly when I've got more time. That's what Jesus is dealing with here. And a lot of us give those types of excuses. You know, I'll help out in the church. I'll serve in the church, but I'll have to do it when I get a better job. When I start to earn more money. Or when I get to the place that, that I have a lot more time on my hand, then I'll be serious about following Jesus. I just don't have the time now. I'm helping my family. I'm cutting the grass. I've got I've to do these other things. And I've got I've to finish my degree. I've got I've to finish my job. I've got to make money. I've got to make sure my family. All of those can be good things. But when they become an excuse for following the Lord, Jesus is not going to have it. And then the last person comes along. And he says, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus is not against saying goodbye, but when he says here, he said, a person who grabs a plow and plows a straight line doesn't look back. Now, he says this in a phrase where he's not saying he looks back and then looks forward and looks back. It's, it's, it's a present participle, which means he's walking forward while looking back. In other words, this is a man who's divided in his heart. He says, Lord, I'll follow you, but not completely. I'll put one foot in following Jesus and one foot back at home. Maybe he's a mama's boy. Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go, but let me keep my ties and my connection back at home. Now, let me ask you this morning, what excuse are you giving Jesus today? Of why you are not committed to following him. It could be that you're unsaved today and you don't know Jesus. And you have in your heart a rejection of truth. And Jesus is coming to you saying, what's more important? And God is dealing with your heart today. You need to trust Christ. What profit a man if he gained the whole world but lose his own soul? Father, I pray as we close today. 
Lord, the lessons that you are, you are teaching us through discipleship, the determination that is upon your face that we read about today to do the hard thing. Forgive us when we become so selfish and self-centered that we can't see anywhere but behind. When our hearts, like Lot's wife, is still back in Sodom and Gomorrah, forgive us. When we give excuses because we've got better things to do, and when those things are over, when my agenda is over, then I'll give you. When we're so selfish about our own path and our own plan and, and our own group, and our attitude is wrong and we need to be corrected. With heads bowed and eyes closed in the invitation this morning, ladies, in just a moment, we'll play something before we're dismissed. I appreciate your patience to stick with me. There's a lot of verses and a lot of things to talk about. There's nothing more important as I was thinking about that painting. The answer to your life and the answer to this world and the answer to this church is when we look to Jesus. And he demands that we follow him completely wholeheartedly. You could be divided here in your, in your motivations and in your heart. And the Lord is pricking your heart. You've been bringing up excuses of why you won't read your Bible. You won't pray. Why you won't attend church. Why you won't uh, uh, be a part of a Bible study or serve or in any way. Because you've got things first. I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me. And as they play with heads bowed and eyes closed, just where you're seated. Would you deal with business with the Lord? Just go right now and between you and God, commit your heart. Ask Him to forgive you of your attitude and your spirit. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ and allow Him to change your thinking. you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior I'd love to talk to you after the service share with you how Jesus Christ can forgive you of your burden of sin and ask that they play through one more time what excuses are you giving the Lord for why you won't trust him Jesus is waiting out he's got so much patience and love towards you Will you listen to him? Take your no trespassing sign off your heart. Let him do a work. Whiter than snow. Wash me just now.